You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. America's Federal Trade Commission looks likely to crack down on non-compete clauses, which bar employees from working for a competitor when they leave a company. That's good news for workers and the economy more broadly. And this week, Ryuichi Sakamoto, a famed Japanese composer, released a new album as he turned 71. It's very different from his considerable back catalog of electronic music and a moving musical meditation on mortality. First up, though. In October, Turkey will celebrate the centenary of its founding, the day when Kemal Ataturk established the Turkish Republic and became its first president. Its current leader, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has called 2023 a pivotal year in the country's history. But what Turkey is pivoting towards is a troubling question. Yesterday, while railing against what he called appreciators of a 2016 coup attempt, Mr. Erdogan hinted that this year's election would be pushed forward to May. And there's reason to worry that election won't reflect the will of the people. Turkey is in an economic mess even bigger than its democratic one, and the vote might be the last chance to stop Mr. Erdogan from unraveling what Ataturk built a century ago. When Recep Tayyip Erdogan first came to power as Turkey's prime minister in 2003, he looked to be a promising leader for the country. Piotr Zalewski is our Turkey correspondent, and in this week's edition of The Economist, he's written a sweeping special report about the country. In his early years in office, he brought relative stability and prosperity. He defanged the army. The economy boomed. Relations with Turkey's Kurdish minority improved. And his reward was the opening of accession negotiations with the European Union in 2005. But later that decade, and especially since the attempted coup against Mr. Erdogan's government in 2016, his autocratic bent has become ever clearer. He has steadily co-opted institutions and eroded checks and balances. The concern now is that should he win the elections scheduled for later this year and consolidate power further, Turkey may slip from being a struggling democracy to a full-blown autocracy. So when you say consolidate power, what exactly has he been doing? 
I mean, this is a process that has been taking place for well over a decade under Erdogan, but especially over the past five or six years. Mr. Erdogan has slowly combined the roles of president, prime minister, and party chairman, and one can say de facto central bank governor. He has curbed dissent, presiding over the arrest of thousands of politicians and activists from Turkey's main Kurdish party, the People's Democratic Party, and an even bigger number of bureaucrats accused of even the most tenuous links to the Gulen movement, which is a religious community suspected of spearheading the 2016 coup. He has also sidelined key rivals within his AK, or Justice and Development Party. Under Erdogan, much of the media has become a tool of state propaganda, and the internet has been largely censored. He has used the courts to harass opponents, and increasingly he has outsourced power to his courtiers, friends, and relatives. So it sounds as if Mr. Erdogan pretty much has it zipped up. He has control over the country's institutions. He's got everything he's aiming for. Well, not quite. And in fact, perhaps the opposite is true in that at this point, Erdogan seems to be facing the toughest election of his 20-year-long political career. His poll ratings are relatively low. His Justice and Development Party and its coalition partner are trailing the main opposition alliance. And a large reason for that is the state of the economy. Because of his insistence on low interest rates, which he thinks are a way to tackle high inflation, which is obviously something that most economists would vehemently disagree with, Turkey now has the second highest inflation among emerging economies, second only to Argentina. Inflation peaked at 85% in December. It's now in the area of 65%. The lira has lost about a third of its value against the dollar last year. And all of this is making Turks poorer. And the Turkish middle class, which Erdogan helped create in the early 2000s, is quickly disappearing. Uh, that's one check on his ambitions. The second check are the elections themselves. Turkey you could say, does not have fair elections these days because the playing field is so heavily tilted in Mr. Erdogan's favor that the opposition is simply not able to compete on the same terms. But that does not rule out a free election, which is to say that come election day, Turks believe and have reason to believe that every vote counts. They have never been stolen. And I think as much as is at stake in these elections and as much as Erdogan and his party might feel they need to do everything to win. Stealing an election, I think, is the last, absolutely the last thing they will want to do. And the reason for that is that Turks continue to believe in the sanctity of the electoral process in elections themselves. So the suggestion here is that elections are just free enough, perhaps, that Mr. Erdogan really does face a challenge at the ballot box. But what if that doesn't work? What if he throttles things a bit further? What does that mean for Turkey? There is concern that another five years of Erdogan rule would push the country more overtly towards autocracy and would consolidate some of the gains that Erdogan has already made and would make some of the changes that he has imposed irreversible. Um, economically, many people in Turkey are already suffering due to his policies 
and an election victory could probably vindicate Mr. Erdogan and his belief that his economic policy is the right one for Turkey. What does that mean for the rest of the world? Erdogan has radically transformed Turkey's foreign policy over the past couple of decades. He seems to believe that Turkey should pursue strategic autonomy from the West and from NATO. And in fact, he has pursued such autonomy, especially in terms of Turkey's relations with Russia. And that obviously matters a lot to the region and to the West. Turkey is home to NATO's second biggest army and is integral to the alliance's Black Sea security, particularly in light of the war in Ukraine. Turkey's reach also extends to the Caucasus and Central Asia, Africa, and certainly the Western Balkans. Turkey is the gatekeeper for immigration into Europe, from the Middle East. It's also seen as something of a buffer between a number of violent extremist movements in the Arab world. Even if the opposition were to win, many of the changes Erdogan has made might be irreversible. But if he is to win, then he is likely to double down. And already the extent of his policy decoupling from the West is a major concern for both the EU and for NATO. If he were to go further down that path, then the tensions with the West and with his NATO partners would only increase. So what can the West do to essentially encourage Mr. Erdogan away from that path? Well, there's concern that there's not much that the West can do. There are a lot of people in Erdogan's inner circle who would like Turkey not only to pursue strategic autonomy, but to pursue closer cooperation with China and Russia. The biggest check on their ambitions is the fact that Turkey is very closely connected to Europe and to the US through its economy and through its army. Turkey relies on Europe for most of its trade, and it's also by far the biggest source of foreign investment in Turkey. And that's something that Russia or China are not in a position to provide, at this point at least. On top of that, Turkey does need Western weapons, notably American fighter jets, including the F-16s. So all of this gives him, at least in theory, an incentive to keep the ties with the West alive. And it offers the West an incentive to keep Erdogan on side. Whether that will happen is in doubt because so far things have been going in the opposite direction. And there is a real risk that if Erdogan were to turn his back on democracy completely and join the dictators club, well, that could hasten the divorce between Turkey and the West. Piotr, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. One of the cornerstones of a functional market economy is the mobility of labor. 
But in practice, how able are workers to move from one job to another? Research suggests a shocking number of American employees are bound by a non-compete clause in their employment contract, meaning they can't quit their job to work for a competing company. But now the Federal Trade Commission, which enforces antitrust laws, has proposed banning such clauses to set workers free. The American workers with non-compete clauses in their contract are not necessarily who you might think. John Prito is The Economist U.S. editor. Surveys conducted by economists suggest that as many as one in five American workers have non-compete clauses in their contracts. Some of those are the people you might expect, so the people who are early into tech startups, people who work in fancy white shoe law firms. But the thing that's, I think, most surprising and most problematic from a public policy point of view is that a lot of workers at the lower end of the labor market have non-compete or no-poach clauses in their contracts. So to give you an example of what I mean by that, back in 2014, it was revealed that Jimmy John's, which is a chain of sandwich shops in America, had a non-compete clause in its employees' contracts, which banned them from going to any competitor that made its money by selling, this is a quote, selling submarine, hero-type, deli-style, pitta, and or wrapped or rolled sandwiches within a three-mile radius of their existing Jimmy John's where they were working. The company's since ended that practice, but research by economists suggests that kind of thing is still pretty widespread. They may be right, but they're also nothing new. Why is the FTC looking into this now? The FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has a mandate to look at anti-competitive practices. And you're right, John, they're nothing new. I think you could point to two things. Number one, the personnel at the FTC. So this is a body whose staff is appointed by the president uh, and confirmed by Congress. And so when Joe Biden became president, there was a change of staff there. And the FTC has been staffed by people who take a perhaps more aggressive approach to competition law enforcement. The other thing I think you could point to is, as we've discussed previously on the intelligence, Democrats lost their majority in the House of Representatives. That means it's harder for the Biden administration to get legislation through Congress, harder for Democrats to get legislation through Congress. And so the Biden presidency has now moved into a different phase, which is trying to get its way and trying to change America through the issuance of regulation and rules out of federal agencies rather than through getting laws past Congress. So the FTC has taken them on because they argue that these causes are anti-competitive. Remind us of the other side. Why do companies like them? What's their argument against the FTC? Well, there are a few, John. First of all, I think some companies would reject the claim that non-compete clauses are anti-competitive, but it's kind of hard to do that, right? The clue is in the name. What I think you have to underline here and be upfront about is that the evidence, it's not exactly that it's mixed. It's that it's just really hard to get very clear evidence about what the effects of non-competes are. You know, if you think about it, you'd have to try and find workers doing exactly the same job in exactly the same industry, some of whom had non-competes and some of whom didn't, and compare them. And so just with that bit of throat clearing out of the way, there are two other things that companies say in the defense of non-competes. One is that they need them to protect trade secrets. And the other is that non-competes give them an incentive to invest in worker training. So you could imagine if you join a company, they spend lots of time and money training you, and then you go off to work for a competitor. That's really annoying. So they say, well, you know, in the absence of non-competes, we're not going to invest so much in training workers. And there's kind of a public interest in firms investing time and money in training workers. So those would be the defenses. It sounds as though neither you nor the FTC is terribly convinced by those arguments. 
No, I'm not convinced by them. I mean, you can see that non-competes are in firms' interests, right? But there is a broader public interest here. Actually, when it comes to economic growth and the spread of innovation, having people move around firms is actually a really good way of spreading ideas, better ways of doing things and getting productivity growth. When it comes to protecting trade secrets, which you can see as a sort of legitimate interest, there are all sorts of other bits of intellectual property law that can be brought to bear. And also lots of companies find ways to keep their employees happy and train them without shackling them to their desks with with non-competes. So I think the evidence is that these kind of clauses are being far too widely used by companies in America at the moment. So what would it mean for workers if they were banned or at least strongly restricted? Who would gain the most? Well, economic theory would suggest that workers would benefit But I also think if you take the idea seriously, that ideas spread when people move and you get innovation that way, then on the margin, the economy would be better off overall. I mean, it's very striking, John, that California, which we tend to think of as the home to disruptive innovation and where the future happens first. In California, these kind of non-compete clauses are banned. And so it's pretty hard to argue looking at that state that they're somehow essential to America's innovation and dynamism. Okay, but if, as you say, one in five workers is covered by a non-compete, how would the FTC go about repealing them or or taking that system apart? So the FTC is able to intervene when it thinks that anti-competitive behavior is going on. So those would be the grounds. The Supreme Court might have something to say about this and that this is the FTC overreaching. But yeah, essentially, there would be a federal rule issued banning or severely restricting these things. Now, there's an interesting wrinkle here, John, which is it seems that about half of workers who have non-competes in their contracts actually work in states where non-competes are not legally enforceable. So one of the things that seems to be going on here is that companies are putting them into contracts almost as boilerplate. However, quite a lot of employees don't seem to know that those clauses in their contracts, which can seem pretty intimidating, are not actually legally enforceable. So there's a kind of double problem here. There's number one, what the law says, and number two, the problem of workers not being well informed about what the law is. John, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, John. Legendary Japanese composer Ryuchi Sakamoto has a new album out this week, and it was released on his 71st birthday. William Warren is our creative producer. The album is called Twelve, and it unsurprisingly collects a dozen musical sketches. But what makes this album different is that these tracks were all penned while Sakamoto recovered from his second battle with cancer. Ryuichi Sakamoto is a prolific composer. His releases number in the hundreds rather than the tens. But he's probably best known in the West for his soundtrack to the 1983 film Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, starring David Bowie. The later acoustic version of the theme has easily surpassed the original in terms of popularity. However, it was Sakamoto's involvement in the pioneering electronic music outfit, Yellow Magic Orchestra, that has really made the mark on music history. They could be described as Japan's answer to craftwork. Much of the music is instantly recognisable as theirs, as they often use traditional Eastern scales. 
For example, Behind the Mask is a contender for the catchiest song ever made, and it's classic YMO. It's been covered by artists as diverse as Michael Jackson, Eric Clapton, and The Human League. There's even a surprisingly fantastic Latin music version of it by Senor Coconut. This deeply influential track was originally written by Sakamoto as an instrumental for a 1978 Seiko wristwatch commercial. But Yellow Magic Orchestra are influential way beyond just churning out jaunty synth-pop. They were always at the vanguard of electronic music. Tracks like the surprise hit computer game Firecracker managed to pioneer two burgeoning genres of music in just one track. So it starts off with chiptune music, that's early video game music characterised by bleeps and bloops. And then only a few minutes later, you can hear one of the first examples of electro music. This wide appeal meant that they appeared on shows such as the legendary black music programme Soul Train. They were even early adopters of what's known as ambient music in the West, something that was made popular by producers like Brian Eno. However, in Japan, ambient music was initially referred to as BGM, background music. And that can clearly be heard on tracks like Loom on the fittingly named album BGM. And if that wasn't influential enough, Yellow Magic Orchestra were one of the first users of the Roland TR-808 drum machine, easily the most important drum machine in modern electronic music history and vital to genres such as hip-hop and house music. Sakamoto continued experimenting even in his later career. One particular highlight is his collaborations with German electronic musician Alvinoto. You can hear in tracks like Logic Moon how Sakamoto will score these wonderful, lonely piano solos whereas Alvinoto will use electronic processing to subtly glitch them. Sakamoto's latest release, 12, is much more pensive than any of the YMO releases. The dozen musical sketches were recorded by Sakamoto between 2021 and 2022, after a big cancer operation and a long stay in hospital. Listening to the album is almost like peeking into his sound diary. The track titles are simply the dates on which they were composed. The exception being a mid-album Saraband, or Triple Metered Dance. Throughout the album, you'll hear these dark, synthesised drones. Sparse chords will ring out and are left to fade unaccompanied. Seemingly a meditation on mortality, on what sustains and what must decay. The meditation on mortality is made ever more profound by the death of his Yellow Magic Orchestra bandmate, Yukihiro Takahashi, last week. Twelve is easily Sakamoto's most intimate album. It's a little too simplistic to suggest that somber tracks, for example, are accurately charting his recovery. But I do think that they hint at the composer's evolving mood and, indeed, his physical condition. On certain tracks, you can clearly hear Sakamoto's frail, laboured breathing as he crouches over the piano and plays. But you can also hear birdsong. These imperfections were intentionally left on the recordings. A reminder, perhaps, that 
Even as breath grows short, life dutifully carries on. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.